Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. Jordan is on best. Harper's on Miller. They play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that always helps us out. We'd love to hear from you and appreciate your feedback. Um, very excited today to be joined by the one and only Caitlin Cooper, uh, my colleague over at Indie Cornrows, to do another two questions to ah. Caitlin, how are you doing today? Doing okay. Today's actually my birthday. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I did not know that. Happy birthday. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I just feel very weird about it. Like, yeah, I get that. It's, it's strange because, like, this time last year was like the last time I did anything with my family, like, in mm-hmm. person. So it's kind of like a bit of a bummer because it's like, you know, looking ahead, there doesn't seem to be a lot of light at the end of the tunnel. But then, like, feeling of guilt of, you know, a lot of people are going through a lot worse things, but it's like just marking the calendar of one year of doing this, yeah. which I realize everyone else is doing it, but it's just kind of a bummer. Yeah. Well, so a good way to start the pod. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I mean, life, life is real, you know. Uh, well, hopefully we can, uh, we can make it at least an enjoyable hour. So and, um, you have a good rest of your day, too. And, and again, happy birthday. Um, do you want to start off? Or do you want me to start off? I, I, I have some stuff ready to go, but I'm interested to see what you have. So I'm forcing you to actually, you know, it's your birthday, so I'm making you go first. <laughs> yeah, just it's a quick explainer in case oh, people yeah. haven't listened to this before. Um, basically, it's two questions, two awe, um, referencing Reb Porter's classic call at the last two minutes of games when he would say two minutes, too hot. And we just ask each other, we come up with two questions. We don't know what the other two questions are going to be from the other person, and we just kind of brainstorm ideas. So, yeah, I'll let you kick it off with whatever you have first. All right. So my first question that I have for you uh, is something that I've been toying with a little bit. Uh, somebody brought it up for me on the mailbag pod, and um, it's become a little bit more prevalent, prevalent uh, recently. So something I've been thinking about, and especially just in watching as well, what do you make of the solo miles minutes? Um, obviously, you know, on-offs can be very distracting, uh, very noisy. Um, but just in watching as well, I mean, the solo miles minutes have been tremendous with the bench. They're plus 14.2 net rating right now. The defense has been phenomenal. The offense has been pretty good. Um, what have you thought of the solo miles minutes? And, and also just kind of it's, it's a little bit of a two-parter, but also the fact that in recent games, um, the team has been closing with one center. Um, and it, it's swapped in, in, in concurrent games, which is a little different. I don't know. It's. Both have been wins, but it's just a little bit odd seeing that. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering where you're coming from or, or looking at that. Well, that second part, I'll wait to answer because okay. it um, kind of blends into something I asked. But the first part, 
Um, I don't have in front of me. I don't know how many minutes it is with miles. It's uh, 435 possessions. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it's definitely looked better than it has last year. Mm -hmm. I think some of that, I think he's being more active on box outs. It's not necessarily showing in his overall rebounding numbers, but I can see him making more of an effort to carve out space. That helps where that was kind of what was dragging some of that down last year as they were really struggling on the glass. Um, Offensively. I mean, I think, I don't know either because I'm looking at this blind. I don't know who the other four people that are on the floor with him most often are, but I'm going to take a guess and say that TJ McConnell's probably out there. Yep, quite a and bit. And the, the offense is running fairly smoothly with him, which I think goes back in part, especially of late, that um, for his career, but especially this season, um, people duck under against TJ McConnell 37% of the time. Like this is a guy who knows how to deal with that type of coverage because he's had to deal with it his entire time in the NBA because he doesn't shoot pull-up threes and he doesn't really shoot threes, period. Whereas for Malcolm Brogdon, this has been very different. That frequency is much higher this year than it had been in Milwaukee or last season with the Pacers. And you can tell that he's kind of struggling to deal with that, which is bogging down some of the offense when when he and Sabonis are out there in certain ways that's leading to some of that stagnancy. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it looks it looks good. That's Those minutes could probably increase I would like it if Sabonis wasn't playing 38 minutes or 40 minutes in games. I think that would help his general output and the types of things we've talked with his energy in games. Um, I will say in general, I'm kind of like, I don't know what word to use here. Um, (laughs) hmm. Rung out by this conversation to an extent, like I'm almost to the point where at times I don't really want to tweet or talk about either one of the centers on this roster, which is kind of, a bummer in itself because they're both really good, but I don't think that the conversation has been super nuanced on it. I mean, I think some of the combinations, I don't understand why the Jeremy Lamb at four minutes are being paired with Sabonis rather than Miles. Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Whereas the Justin Holiday at four minutes are being paired with Miles instead of Sabonis. Like, and even in the Atlanta game, I thought that might switch up because they did what you and I have talked about before. They took Sabonis out earlier in the first quarter and played Miles almost the entire first. I thought, oh, you know, maybe Justin's going to come out with Sabonis and then both of them will come back in. But that wasn't how it ended up being paired. They're playing a lineup with McConnell, Aaron, Jeremy, Doug, and Sabonis, which I don't, I think they survived somewhat offensively because Jeremy was hitting shots, but defensively that's just causing a lot of liabilities. Jeremy's defense in general has been quite bad these last several games, if we're being honest. So I don't really understand some of the combinations at times. And I think that's feeding into some of what's going on, but just for miles, case and what he's been out there on the floor with the bench for the season, it's been good. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, especially looking at, like you mentioned with Jeremy's defense, I was doing a pod with Tony East last week and we, uh, we like siphoned through to look at what the defensive rating is um, with Domas and, and, and Jeremy Lamb on court together. And it's like a 120 defensive rating. So absolutely not good. So well, that's and in a, Jeremy's really defense, point. it's like when I wrote about my article about Jeremy at the four, when has he ever been a back oh, yeah. defender in his entire career? Yeah, I mean, exactly. in that Pistons game, he's out guarding Blake Griffin. Sabonis walks up to bump him off. He doesn't bump off, and they just give up a wide-open shot. He's getting torched out on the perimeter. Like, that's not really about what your rim protection even is in those instances. It's just mm-hmm. about a guy who's not ever been in this role and probably shouldn't be in it now, but because of injuries, you don't have a ton of other options. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Also, fun fact, Jeremy Lamb is currently uh, – what do you, do you know off the top of your head what his points per shot attempt is? 
<laughs> he saw he's averaging well it's not technically averaging but 1.38 points per per shot attempt uh, believe it or not, that's really damn good. So no, yeah, the, I mean he's the, shooting yeah, the, the three. I, I mean he's shooting the three incredibly well. Yeah, especially off the catch. But I mean this is kind of the Jeremy Lamb experience. He's somewhat <laughs> yes. of a variable scorer, and that's what he does. You're not going to get a whole lot else in terms of playmaking or defense. So when the highs are high, it's it's survivable. But when they're not, it's not as much. It is it is a rough go of things if Jeremy only takes six shots and makes one of them. Um, so I all right. Well, what is a uh, what is your first question? And now that we've parsed through that one. Okay, so the first one had to do with the the second half of your question, which mine is just basically: Do the Pacers have a closing lineup? Oh, that's that's a great question. No, <laughs> I, I think the answer is no. Just from what we've seen, um, it's I don't want to say it's funny. I mean, it's just a little bit ironic because. You know, we talked about how we really want to see this team experiment and do a lot of new things, and they have. But I think the the way that it's changed with the closing lineup, um, I don't want to say that it's bad, but I think – I don't know if you would agree with me on this, but I think that the closing lineup is like the one spot where I, know, I don't necessarily want to see um, all of these crazy experimentations happening. Um, you know, like I think – Part of it's difficult because I'm, I'm sure is, and it's fair to bring up, you know, TJ, TJ Warren and Karis LeVert are out. So you're missing two of your five best players. Um, but I think it's also important to, to talk about, you know, if you don't have guys who are consistently closing together and working on closing together um, and honing in on that lineup, instead of, you know, <laughs> continually bringing new guys in um, or just re shifting how you're doing things in the closing lineup. I, I, I don't, I don't necessarily understand that. Um, I remember I, I emailed you about this the other day when the Pelicans game happened and they closed the entire fourth quarter with uh, with the bench unit and brought Miles in after Goga fouled out. Um, like, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that there's there it, it just comes down to a lot of the same stuff we've been talking about, just finding a balance and having this aggressive defense or doing different experimental things and actually, you know, having some of the consistency that the team had been built on before then. Um, so I, I think the answer is no, there isn't a there isn't really a set closing lineup right now. So then the second half of that is, do you think that's a bad thing um, or a good thing? I think maybe it's a good thing in the regular season, but when it comes to the playoffs, I mean, uh, I, I think I lean more towards it being not a great thing. Like I, I, you know, you can throw teams off in the regular season, but when it comes to doing stuff in the postseason, I don't know, just personally gut feeling. And, and maybe I'm a little bit, um, biased based on how the last two weeks of Pacers basketball have gone, but I think I would lean on it not necessarily being a good thing. Okay, so I looked at uh, some of the numbers on this to do some background research, and I expanded it out beyond just clutch minutes to the last seven minutes of games when they've been the score's been within five points, whether the Pacers are leading or not. And the Pacers' mm -hmm. top eight guys. They have eight guys who have logged at least 25% or at least 20% of the minutes in those situations, which means McConnell, McDermott, Sabonis, Turner, Justin Brogdon, Aaron, Jeremy have all played at least 20% of the minutes in those situations. Meanwhile, just Brogdon, Turner, and Sabonis have barely clocked together over 50% of the minutes. So like, I agree with you and what you're saying with Karis and TJ that like, you're not going to have, like, there's no real way for the Pacers to put out their, their full closing yeah. lineup right now, because they don't have two of the players that I would assume would be out there. But those three not playing together more at the end of the games, I think is somewhat questionable. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, overall, they're seven and eight in clutch games. That's just with last five minutes. That's by NBA.com. But they're 23rd and they're plus minus in those situations. I mean, yeah, when you emailed me about the New Orleans Pelicans game, I think there were certain reasons because that was really the game mm-hmm. where teams first started ducking under against Brogdon. TJ was running the offense better in those situations. Aaron is quick to shoot behind a pick more so than Brogdon is. Doug is is super sharp and IQ wise and running and the two screen actions that they run away from the ball. He knows when he needs to screen his own guy or screen another guy against switches against whenever they were shooting the gap. So there was some logic there behind just rolling with that group. And overall, I was more concerned about why the starters were in an 18 point hole to begin with. Mm -hmm. But then you get to those last two seconds or the last play of the game. And Lonzo ball even said it to the newspapers in new Orleans. Like I knew what play they were going to run. He ducked under again. The under is the reason he was in position to be vertical on that last shot. And he's like, well, they ran the same play three times in a row. So I knew that they were going to run it again. And that's somewhat goes back to your earlier question about the miles solo minutes. Like those are happening in very short bursts of time. And I can Mm -hmm. tell you from like the lots of plays that they run, they don't run their full playbook when miles is on the court, because there's just a lot of the delay actions and stuff that they just aren't going to run in those situations. So you get into a late game and then it's like, okay, we're running the same high pick and roll play that fortunately like miles to his credit, he was cold for a long time too. Like he came in and place a goga and drilled that huge three to give them life. But then they ran the same play two more times because they weren't going to run that other stuff. So I think that was a little bit questionable. Obviously we talked in the aftermath of the Sixers game that we both questioned why TJ McConnell was on the floor against Philadelphia's zone issues, especially when like Aaron did have it rolling and they tend to run with the hot hand. And then they benched Aaron midway through the quarter, even though he had like 17 points in that Mm -hmm. game. And then obviously against Atlanta last night, like there's no way you're taking Aaron out when he scores 11 or not last night, two nights ago scores 11 straight and just the overall impact that TJ McConnell was having. So I, I get it, but I think that there's something to be said for like, I know in the aftermath of, of the game and the presser, Nate Bjorken said, well, what I really liked about this is that we played a lot of different combinations and a lot of different combinations are getting used to playing together. And it's like, yes, but your top three players aren't necessarily getting used to playing together. And when you are in the playoffs, I think you need to be able to have the very best players on the floor. I think there's room for some tinkering mm-hmm. where, you know, if Philadelphia is in that zone, you you might make different choices. So adaptability does matter. But uh, I do look back like it's, it's easy to go back and forth because in the first game that the Pacers played in the playoffs last year against Miami, the Heat trotted out at the end of that game. Goran Dragic, Jimmy Butler – Tyler Hero, Andre Iguodala, and Bam Adebayo. And prior to that game, that lineup had played zero minutes. And they outscored, like they blitzed the Pacers in that fourth quarter. The Pacers scored 21 points on 36% shooting. They switched everything. They suffocated them with switches and just bet that Brogdon wasn't going to be able to beat them in isolation situations. And their bet definitely paid off. So on the one hand, it's like, okay, well, they played this lineup, this closing group that had never even played before. So maybe some of this doesn't matter. But then when you look at that lineup, it's kind of like, okay, well, the Heat didn't have an opportunity to really work Iguodala into the lineup much before the hiatus. And all five of those players are very high IQ players, and it did give them the opportunity. That's their switching lineup. So you kind of get why they weren't playing, but then that lineup did play a lot in the playoffs. So for the Pacers case, though, when you look at some of the players that are being 
put into the closing lineup, I still don't know. Maybe maybe the change in system will matter, but I just question if TJ McConnell is going to be playable, how playable he will be in the playoffs, and especially at the end of a game. And the same to a certain extent with Doug, some to degree with Aaron and and what he gives up in terms of hunting switches because of his size. So it's like you're giving late game minutes to some of these guys, and then maybe later on that they're not super playable. So I'm somewhat on the fence, but I think that there does need to be more of an emphasis on at least the three of Brogdon, Turner, and Sabonis being on the floor. Because like as you say, you know Sabonis closed the game against Detroit. Miles got yanked when he didn't get that play to go. They got the five-second call. He never played again after that. And then in the next game, there was a pretty big emphasis to play him, to switch their roles, to play Miles the entire first quarter against Atlanta. And then that lineup's rolling in the fourth, and they close with Miles. Meanwhile, Goga did not play in either game, except for some victory cigar minutes against Detroit. So I, I think there's a few red flags there, but we'll see once I, I think everything always gets couched with, you know, when Warren and Levert are back, but yeah, I think there's some lingering red flags there. Yeah, definitely. And I think the other thing I would say too, just, you know, and thinking on it um, and it's arbitrary. I mean, we've talked about it before, but um, you know, obviously Nate Bjorkman is big on testing new combinations and, and seeing all of this play out. But I, I think like what we're both hitting at is it's one thing to be doing that in the, you know, the middle of the second quarter or the beginning of the third quarter or, Anytime in the, those quarters, but you're looking, you know, last five minutes of the fourth quarter, um, you got to have that group out. And it's part of the reason it's not happening is because of how much the guys are being played before then. Um, you know, if you're gassing guys out before then, it's hard to have them playing well at the end. I, I, don't, I don't know. It's. Um, oh, I think some of it's matchups. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like the Kings game when Miles didn't play at the end and like everybody lost their crap because De'Aaron Fox attacked on that switch the Kings were small. So you had to make a choice there. Like, and that's what choice they made. But my point being is like, that kind of tells you what you need to know. Like you need to figure out a way to keep both of your bigs on the floor at the end of a game. And if you can't, then that should be sending you a message about something like, yeah. and you need to get those reps now so that when it is in the playoffs, you know how to keep both of your bigs on the floor at the end of a game. Like, I, I don't know. I've questioned a lot of things over the last two weeks, if I'm being honest. But. <laughs> I Trust me, I have too. Uh, going one in, uh, one in seven over, uh, over an eight-game stretch, I feel like definitely does that to you. Um, well, all right. I, I guess, I mean, I, I don't have anything more positive to get into. So my next question um, for you would be, how worried are you about Malcolm Brogdon? Or, or maybe worried is the wrong way to put it. Um, but what are your thoughts on – uh, how he's it's it sounds rough to say fallen off but to an extent I mean he has fallen off since the old depot trade I mean you can just look right now uh, below league average true shooting percentage uh, over the 16 games without old depot obviously the numbers are still really good um, you know in just in terms of raw numbers uh, but you know in looking at stuff yesterday his drives haven't been affected like he's still driving the same amount he's still passing out the same well roughly the same amount but he's not his uh passing efficiency has dropped. He's turning over the ball a little bit more out of drives, but he's still finishing at the same rate, which is uh, not a good rate. Um, but overall, just his efficiency has has dropped a ton, especially on threes. And like we talked about, the um, the pull-up threes are where it's most, um, most noticeable. I mean, I believe it's a 17% drop from where he was at the beginning of the season, which part of that is, I mean, he was shooting at an unsustainable level, like 45, 46% on pull-up threes, but – 
Now he's dropped down to like last year's shooting percentages on pull-up threes, which is obviously not very good. Right. I mean, I think some of that, uh, maybe some of the beginning of the season was an aberration. I mean, I Mm -hmm. know that he put in a lot of work on that, but he has, he has a tendency when he's shooting pull-up threes, which is the article I wrote at the beginning of the season that his pickup isn't always super clean. Mm -hmm. So sometimes he wants to get in an extra dribble to get that ball to his strong hand so that he can pick up with his right instead of going from his left. And then, or excuse me, the reverse of that. Like if if he's getting, if he's, if the defense is weakening him and he's going to his left, he wants to get an extra dribble into his right hand so he can pick up with his right. So that when he's going to his left, he doesn't have to pick up with his left. So that feeds into some of it. And then when he's facing an under, he doesn't want to stop right behind the screen, which is the one conversation you could see he and Sabonis having, I, I believe, it was against Detroit where you can see Sabonis motioning to him. Like you have to, you can't go past the handoff or past the screen or else he doesn't, his release isn't quick enough to get into his gather and release the ball when a defender is right in front of him. And he, he doesn't want to stop right there. And then there were times against the Pelicans where he was rejecting the rescreen over and over again, because he wanted to drive into that open space. But um, I think some of it has to do with the pick and roll setup. And I think some of it has to do with um, his number might just be regressing a little bit closer to the norm. I think that he did improve somewhat as a shooter. I'm not sure he improved to like, you know, Kyrie Irving levels of shooting 45% on four pull-up threes per game. And I do think that there's probably something to do with how much of a load he and Sabonis have been carrying, especially on Brogdon's end. Like, I mean, it goes back to the playoffs, but the numbers really haven't changed. His time of possession is still really absurd. And uh, the level of minutes he was playing. I think that he's shown this season and last that he can kind of wear down midway through the season a bit. And we're seeing some of that, but I do think that the unders are are rerouting a lot of what the Pacers are trying to do offensively. And that really started kind of with Stan Van Gundy. And then the teams after since then have basically copied it and seen that the effect that it's had, because when the Pacers, most of their offense is geared around putting pressure on the rim. I mean, that's, probably even an understatement like that's really the key to their offense so if you can keep Brogdon out of the paint then that's leading to more post-ups for Sabonis and I have a lot of pet peeves with that because the Pacers are not treating each game in and of itself with that like if he does not have a physical advantage which we know this from years past like it wasn't super surprising that he had those two down games because he generally does struggle against Steven Adams and Rudy Gobert that was true even in the Olympic or not the Olympics the World Cup when Lithuania played France Rudy has just so much length that he couldn't really score in that matchup. So if you know that you can't be playing a four, one alignment on a post up and just be standing there with fixed spacing on the three point line. Like you need to run a split cut and stuff above the top, like his numbers synergy wise passing out of doubles and passing on cuts are pretty outstanding. So I don't, I don't really know why they weren't taking advantage of that knowing that if the pick is going to lead to an under and that Sabonis is then going to have to dive, you can't just be standing there and expecting him to like work magic. And I think that that's contributed a lot to what the offensive numbers have looked like when he's been out on the court, but you know, and then it's different when you're against Detroit and he has a physical advantage, then maybe you can let him bully those mismatches. Although I will say that Justin and Doug, especially in the first quarter, were doing a lot more cutting around those actions, which made a difference in comparison to what it was before, but you can't treat all of those post-ups exactly the same. And and, and a whole nother caveat against Toronto, like Toronto, I joked was basically using the reverse box and one against Sabonis. He's having 
four people defending him while one's roaming around out on the three-point line. And again, it's just complete fixed spacing, which I think is why Bjorkren's harped on that a lot. I mean, the one broadcast, you could literally hear him through the telecast yelling, move, and like all caps. So uh, I think you have a pretty good weapon there. I mean, the numbers that they have on post-ups, including passes, are one of their best play types, and they didn't really tap into that during those those three games. But yeah, I mean, the Brogdon thing, I think that this whole team as a whole, for one, needs Warren and Karras to get healthy. And I yeah. think some of that will correct itself because what Bjorkren said at the beginning of the season, he really hasn't been able to do. He wanted an offense where you could use multiple hand, ball handlers, use different screening combinations. And if Karras and TJ Warren are out there, then and the under happens for one, they can both shoot behind a pick. Like we saw TJ Warren do this in the bubble. TJ Warren can hit a pull-up three. Karis Levert can hit pull-up threes. He's better shooting off the dribble than he is shooting off the catch. So if you can even mix in some of those possessions where Brogdon can play a little bit more off ball, I don't think that it upends the offense quite to this degree, but I also think they, they're just a team that has looked in the last week, like they need the all-star break so that they can kind of get their energy stores back too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, I guess, I mean, not to ask a whole other question off it, but you know, uh, again, not concerned, but well, what are your thoughts on you know Domas just going straight at Gobert um, in in that game? And obviously, it's happened in slightly like, like going up against DeAndre Jordan too against Brooklyn. Um, like, of course, you can bring up off ball movement like you did. The off ball movement has been has totally died down. That was another question I had in case you know you had one of mine. Um, you know, the off ball movement has really, really just fallen off compared to how it looked at the beginning of the year. Um, but it, to me, I mean, it was, I don't want to say it was shocking, but like listening to Nate Bjorkren after the Brooklyn game, um, and the Utah game saying that, you know, those were the looks he wanted, um, from Domas and part of that, you could say, maybe he's just trying to back up the players. Um, so I get that, but at the same time, I mean, if, if, if you want Domas going at, at Rudy Gobert and think that's a good look, I mean, that is, uh, I, 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 the numbers and watching the game would certainly disagree with that. Well, I think that it kind of goes back to what was causing it though. Like yeah. again, if, if Brogdon is seeing an under and he can't get into the paint, then you're throwing it to Sabonis in that situation. And they weren't running a ton of stuff off top. I mean, they probably could have been running more of their delay stuff. They did get some, he did get a couple scores in the fourth quarter against Rudy Gobert out of that. But mm-hmm. I don't completely disagree with Bjorkren in the sense that they basically have two main playmakers on this team to generate offense for other people. And that's Brogdon and Sabonis. So there, I don't really have a problem with posting up somebody with the idea that that's just an opportunity to create a vehicle yeah. for this. It just needed to be a different approach with how they were doing it. I mean, you'd see the Warriors do this all the time. Like they weren't, Clay Thompson can score in the post, but a lot of times they ran actions for Clay Thompson to catch the ball in the post simply so he could hit a cutter in their heyday. Um, And that's what the post was being used for. So if they needed other ways to create offense, I understand why they were doing it, but then they weren't running a few of their plays like, you know, the top pin for Miles Turner. He orbits into a three. They did not run that against Utah. Um, They ran it once against New Orleans, I believe. Um, even the Hawks the other night, they were, they were running split cuts with Clint Capella. And I was like, Oh, Hey, that, that, you know, 
pacers maybe try to do some of that if you have screening options up top the, the post entry passer needs to either screen away or receive a screen and a lot of times it's just like i said it's four people standing there they could even benefit at times from using the dunker spot more because the 45 cuts that miles was getting you can tell that teams have started to scout they're squeezing him at that elbow mm -hmm. so for him just to be able to cut in between that gap and benefit off of that gravity i don't think is going to work in the same degree but uh if you use the post-entry passer on the strong side with Sabonis and then you're screening away and then you have Miles in the dunker, that's creating more tension so that if somebody rotates to Domas, then Miles is getting a dunk under the basket. I think that there's some things positionally that they could have done differently. Um, and, and as you say, I think that Bjorkren is totally a player's coach. I think that he and Nate McMillan are like polar opposites. Not that Nate McMillan, not that Nate McMillan threw guys under the bus, but you know, the Sarge mentality versus yeah. Bjorkren, I think borders on being, almost too much of a buddy at times. Like, I mean, I'll go to this as an example, not only like the coaches challenges early in the season when he was like challenging things for Victor Oladipo that really weren't going to have an impact on the game. Like that would result in a jump ball and like, who cares? Mm -hmm. But also like, I, I can't remember which game it was. He left Sabonis and Turner in the game late in the fourth and garbage time. I think it was against Memphis until, yeah. until miles had picked up his 10th rebound and then he subbed him out. I'm like, yeah, I, I was what, not what a big is the fan point, of that. <laughs> what is the point of this meaningless, like, double-double? Like, honestly, who cares? Like, we couldn't tell that Miles played well without him getting a double-double. Or I forget which milestone they were waiting to pull Sabonis on. And it's, you know, I think that some of it, like I said, he's, he's a player's coach, and they wanted that to some degree. So that might be somewhat responsible for his answer. But I think it also just plays into what I said. Like, if you're in Brooklyn and DeAndre Jordan's in a, I mean, he was in an extremely deep drop in those games. That's how they play him. They couldn't go into their pick and roll, which last year against Brooklyn, Sabonis turned DeAndre Jordan into putting in those matchups because mm -hmm. he was being used off the roll. They couldn't do that very many times because they were going under once again against Brogdon. So in an ideal world, it's like I say a lot of times with Giannis, I question with the Bucks, you know, when they were playing Brooklyn, why is Giannis taking six threes when you could be using him in dribble handoffs and handing off to Chris Middleton? And they ran that one time. Well, for the Pacers, even generally people will duck under on a dribble handoff because it's very hard for a person to shoot going from left to right, unless you're like an expert shooter, like Doug McDermott. So they were ducking under on those situations with Brogdon. But if you have Karis LeVert and TJ Warren, then you can hand off to them to shoot into that open space. This is the problem. Like the Pacers have besides Brogdon, who's averaging, like, I don't know what his numbers have been over the last two weeks, but for the season, he's at about four and a half pull up threes per game. If not for those attempts, they would be dead last by a sizable margin and pull up threes per game. Like they just don't have anyone else to go to. And when they go to the bench lineup, which against Brooklyn and Milwaukee and, and Philadelphia, they didn't really barely play solo miles, but a lot of that's just like TJ Warren vibing. And if we're being honest, like they don't defend those actions. Like they don't run all the same plays, but like the pistol action that they'll run that has a, a, a boomerang set on the side and then Sabonis and, and miles roll to the basket. Like a lot of times they leave miles open on that to send two to the ball on TJ. Whereas if it's Sabonis, he's getting both defenders on him and, and the ball handlers allowed to go through. So I think some of the actions run a little bit differently, but I understand why they were posting him. I just don't understand why the post-ups were being run in the way that they were, if that's my very long winded answer. Yeah, no, I, that I, I appreciate the long winded answer. That's uh, that's, that's what two questions to us founded on long answers and food takes. Um, 
Well, Caitlin, what is your your second question? I'm, I'm interested to dive into it. Oh, uh, yes. This one comes from Twitter. I believe it was Frederick Richmond. So thank you for the question. Um, he asked if how will the how will the defense be impacted when when Karras and TJ Warren are back? What just overall? Oh, I think it'll be better. Um, I mean, that's just my initial take. I mean, and I think that one's uh, I don't want to say it's easy, but I, I think the biggest thing is just size. Having size on the wings will be fantastic. I mean, it's not even that TJ is like a great defender. He's he's solid and he's a lot better than he was in Phoenix. Um, but just the fact that there's going to be somebody who's like size to somebody like Jeremy Grant, which luckily, I mean, uh, they played pretty well on Jeremy. I mean, Justin Holiday was fantastic on Jeremy Grant, but also Jeremy Grant just missed a lot of shots that he's been hitting all year. Um, having somebody who's actually that size that you can throw on those guys makes a huge difference. You know, it's not even about like, for the most part, you're not worried uh, or not, not that you're not worried about it, but like, if you play against LeBron James, you know, okay, LeBron James is really, really good. He's going to score. We are not going to stop LeBron James from scoring. But if, if, we, if we have someone who consistently can, can make him at least have to work, that's important. Um, and just in all honesty right now, I mean, when you have Aaron Holiday guarding Brandon Ingram down the stretch of a game, you're not making Brandon Ingram work as, as, as hard as Aaron plays. I mean, like, that's a – six seven inch height difference and, and i don't even know wingspan differential right now but like that's you know it's it's not like you're not guarding him but to an extent you're it's like you're guarding him with half a man just having tj and karis who are bigger body guys with solid wingspans able to actually play defense out there will be huge what i'm more interested in seeing is how they look in the scheme um i think in some ways it'll be good uh because Part of the reason that the Raptors scheme works because that's what the Pacers run for the most part um, is that they have guys who are long and athletic that can close out. And TJ and, and Karras are both long and decently athletic. And, and I, I think that'll help with closing out to the corners and maybe to three-point shooters as well because I think um, that's something that, you know, you've, you've talked about how uh, obviously the Pacers are giving up a pretty torrid percentage from three. And I think part of that is because even if it's a contested shot, it's being contested by TJ McConnell or Aaron Holiday or or somebody who's, you know, even if TJ's running a perfect closeout, if it's a six, seven, six, eight shooter, it, it's not like it's not nearly the same kind of contest as you're getting from somebody like TJ Warren or, or Karis LeVert. So I think that makes a difference in and of itself. Um, but I still just have questions on who is you know, who exactly are you throwing at to, to stop somebody at the point of attack uh, in an isolation? Um, but overall, I think the team defense is more what I'm looking at. And I, I think, again, long-winded way of saying, I think it will be better ultimately just because you have more variability in the kind of size that you have on the court. And I think that makes a big difference. This is Advertiser Content brought to you by Frito-Lay. Hello, I'm Chip Murphy, here to get you ready for the big tournament. Tonight we'll break down, we break down who will be cutting, cut! What are you two doing? Sorry, Chip. Prez here got his feathers ruffled when I told him Ruffles has zero chance of winning the title. And I was letting Dip know that she is not taking into account Ruffles' iconic ridges. Guys, it's March. We have to start talking about the tournament. We are. 
It is the 2023 Frito-Lay Snack It. We're talking about big time matchups between Cheetos, Smart Food, Lay's, Sun Chips, and more. Just head to the Frito-Lay Snack Bracket and vote for your favorite chip, pretzel, or dip for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. This sounds great. Keep up the good work. Just go to frito No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends 4-3-2023. Void wherever hip Here's worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at frito Just thinking about the size on the closeouts made me think, so, like, you would definitely be in favor of Aaron guarding Gallo for, like, eight possessions, right? <laughs> uh, yes. Oh, totally. It was great. Uh... Yeah, I mean... I mean, the the big difference here with the Pacers and the Raptors is, like, the Raptors gave up, like, a ton of three-point attempts last year, but then they led the league in blocking three-point yeah. attempts. The Pacers don't give up a lot of three-point attempts, but they a lot of them are not very well contested, which that can mm-hmm. be somewhat noisy. But um, one of the things you said about Jeremy Grant actually resonated a little bit because I thought Justin was really good. He forced some tough shots in the paint and he just prevented him from actually getting the ball where the Pistons actually swung it to the other side of the floor. However, he did get some open shots in the corner out of their two, three zone, which I think that the zone should be a separate discussion in and of itself. But, um, to talk about what Frederick actually asked me, uh, Karis, I think is somewhat of a, can be a little bit boom or bust on that end. Like in the sense that, I mean, he's had games where he's had six steals in a game and certainly that matters to the Pacers. Like if you can just cut off these possessions and get going in transition, then, you know, how they're defending in rotation doesn't matter as much if I want to be, you know, really rudimentary here, but uh, he has some lapses where I think that like you can look over the years that when he's producing more offensively and has the ball in his hands, his defense picks up with that. Mm-hmm. Whereas in times where he was kind of pushed off, whether, you know, by Kyrie, D'Angelo Russell, whoever, you can see that his deflections, his defensive field goal percentage, his contested shots. It just seems to be very tied to the flow of his offense, which then I think brings up an interesting question kind of in and of itself that in the past, like when they traded for TJ Warren, I remember the day that I wrote that because somebody had actually told me like two weeks ahead of time, like, Hey, the Pacers are going to trade for TJ Warren. So I wrote that article and like, I knew what his reputation as a defender was, but I was like, I'm not concerned by this Mm -hmm. because I think that he's going to produce enough offensively. And I trust that Dan Burke's going to iron out those kinks because they had such a good reputation for, you know, kind of tightening the screws on wing defenders between him and Boyan Bogdanovich, especially. And now it's like, I don't know if that thing still exists. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I can definitely, like it could happen. I'm not saying it won't, but I don't, I'm not as like certain when I'm writing an article as I was when TJ was coming that like, Hey, Karis Levert's going to be a better defender because this is what the Pacers do. I don't know if that's still the same thing. Um, TJ, as you said, I think the big difference there for one is going to be Jeremy Lamb is not going to play at the four anymore. Yes. Like, because Justin isn't going to be starting anymore. So then Justin's going to be the one defending fours, which as we've said many times, he gives up size in certain possessions, but he's just overall a much better defender than Jeremy and Jeremy can go back to being on the wing and not doing what he's been doing. So I think those two things alone defensively will make a difference, but, uh, I do have some questions about the defense overall. Uh, The zone, if we're being honest, has not been good. Like by synergy standards or by the eye test, they rank, they've run zone 
the only there's only two teams that have run zone more than the Pacers this year, and their defensive deficient or efficiency ranks 19 of the 26 teams that have run zone. Uh, when they're in the two three, that does not take a lot to break. It is like a quick swing swing reversal, and the team is getting a wide open corner three because whether it's Turner and Sabonis out there, just Turner, just Sabonis. If you do a quick swing swing reverse, all you have that's all you have to do, and then a center's chasing out to the corner. Yeah, and and they're just it. I really do question, I feel like I'm stuttering a bit here, but I go back to the beginning of the season and I wonder if this would look somewhat differently if this was a normal season where they had a full training camp to prepare because, you know, a lot of teams have, you know, this is our base defense and some of them sprinkle in a little bit of zone. There are some teams that are running no zone and the Pacers are running like six different types of defense. And sometimes in the same night, they're showing, you know, four or five coverages against one player. And there's times like, in the Atlanta game, there is one possession, and I can point to these almost every time they go to box and one, where there is literally no one else at the top of the box. Doug McDermott is on the left corner, and the other three players look like they're in a 2-3 zone, and Doug yep. McDermott is turned over his shoulder, motioning like, hey, get up here. We're in a box and one, while TJ McConnell is shadowing Trey Young, and half the team is playing one type of defense. I don't think they actually scored on that, but like that's not high functioning defense. And the same thing happened um, in one of the box and one possessions with Goga several weeks ago, where he and Jeremy, Jeremy Lamb's like telling him we're in, we're in box and one and Goga's running pick and roll. They, they just don't always seem like they know which type of defense they're playing. And then sometimes the way that they set it is just very confusing. Like I'll try to explain this the best I can via podcast form without a video, but like, imagine this, they're playing the Clippers. Sabonis is on the bottom right block. I believe Brogdon is on the bottom left. McDermott is at the top and Aaron holiday is on the same elbow as Sabonis on the right side. So all Marcus Morris does is cuts into the center of the box from the left wing and Brogdon doesn't lift up so that Doug McDermott can pinch that guy. So Aaron does it from the opposite side of the corner. And then Marcus Morris passes to Patrick Patterson at the right wing. And then instead of letting Sabonis play backline solo, they have him chase out to the wing. Like, I, I don't understand why you would set that that way. That can't be what Nate Bjorkern wants, but that happens a lot. Where like they're leaving, you know, in that case, it would be Doug McDermott as the lone backline defender when ideally – you would just want Aaron to be able to stay home and Doug's pinching in from the opposite side. Like there's just a lot of times where that seems fairly messy. Like if you look at the box score against the Hawks, it's like, Oh, it did its job because Trey young didn't really score and the Hawks missed some threes, but like they weren't missing a bunch of contested threes. Like, especially in the fourth quarter, it was like Gallo misses a wide open three Gallo misses a wide open three Gallo misses a wide open three Herder misses a wide open three. And it's not like they even moved the ball around much. They went down Trey Young passed around the person in the box with a hook pass to Herder on the wing, and he's just shooting a wide open three with like Aaron Holiday trying to run out there. So I'm not sure how good that looks. Like, I get that you might want it in the playoffs, but like last year when the Raptors were doing all these things, it was really, really good. Like, their zone efficiency was very good. Their press defense was number one in the NBA, which granted not a lot of teams are running press defenses, but that, that was a legitimate like attack mechanism where sometimes when the Pacers run it, it feels like they're just kind of shielding some weaknesses there for lack of better term. And, and I question, 
somewhat like I mean I everybody knows this I don't understand Sabonis's role in this defense yep. really at all I don't I don't <laughs> I get don't how either. he's being used yeah. and I don't I don't think that miraculously Sabonis just woke up this season and is like hey I used to be a, a pretty you know average defender I, I definitely wouldn't say he was below average the numbers like I said I mean the number I showed yesterday and 34 games without Miles Turner that in games he did not play so it wasn't like he was covering up for stuff they held opponents to 105 points per 100 possessions when Sabonis was on the floor. Like it, that's, that's good. If not survivable. And and the numbers when miles was off were survivable. And now it, I mean, that's been complete drop off. I don't know why you're at the end of a Brooklyn Nets game and Sabonis is fighting over an inverted pick for Jeff green. And then Brogdon's just like soft switching and been like, okay, now, now you defend James Harden on a switch or why they're in transition. And Sabonis is like, Hey, somebody pick up James Harden, somebody pick up James Harden. And they all just motion for him to do it. Like, I I don't know why he's the person that's being exposed on some of these switches and cross matches so often. Uh, The pressuring up on the non-shooters, the going overboard with overs is, I don't know why that's one size fits all. And some of the pairings don't make a lot of sense, but you know, yeah, I do question what, what is your thoughts in general? Just, on the defense, yeah, I, um, to put it kind of bluntly, I mean, I, I've said it to you before. It just feels very much so like I I understand the philosophy behind it, and I'm not nearly as as smart with X's and O's as you are. Um, but like just looking at stuff, um, I get what Nate Bjorkman is going for. I get that he wants to be aggressive and force turnovers, but at the same time, it just feels very much so like okay, if you just dial it back like five to ten percent and tweak a few things, then it, it looks, it would be just so much more understandable. But like you mentioned, like pressuring Andre Drummond 28 feet out, um, which also uh, Andre Drummond getting traded now, which is kind of funny um, now that we're talking about it, but uh, it just doesn't make sense. Like, like you mentioned with the box and one, I pulled a clip yesterday from the Hawks game on a sideline on a bounce play. Like you were mentioning, they like, they, they came out in a box and one cam reddish is in the weak side corner and they, they don't even have anybody on him. Like, so they're, you're just in a box and one for, for what reason you have two? I mean, Trey young gets the ball. I mean, Trey young doesn't even get the ball. He passes into Kevin Herter. Kevin Herter passes it over once to Cam Reddish and the closest guy's 10 feet off of him and it ends up in a wide open three from the corner. Like it's just little things like that. Like, okay, well maybe we don't have to start off in box and one on this possession. Maybe we can just play straight man and realize, Hey, this guy's wide open in the corner. Let's not start off in box and one. And that could be, you know, obviously, uh, miscommunication from the guys on the court but regardless like you're not putting your your guys in a great position if you're saying okay well let's we'll run box and one right out of the sideline out of bounds play um like just things like that I, I think that there's there's enough there to be like hey why are we doing this like we've seen Demonis Sabonis get torched on the perimeter and not not his fault I mean he's not a laterally quick guy like you mentioned why why is he why is he the one who's being forced in the guarding James Harden out of transition? Like things like that. It just, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, it, it just feels like there are a lot of things going on that aren't fully executed well. And it would maybe be better if you just dial it back a little bit and then focus more on those things. Um, at least that that's just been my thought. It feels very much so like uh my friends who are ADHD would describe being ADHD. Like they're trying to do six different things at once at once. And then they end up, you know, completing two or three of them at like an okay level instead of doing pretty well at one thing that they can focus on. 
Right. And then the, the question is like, and I can look back at last year with Trey Young, for instance, and I, I, I mean, he scored like 50 on him one game. And I remember being frustrated in the opposite way in that game because it took him till after halftime to start blitzing him. But the difference being was the Hawks roster. Like mm-hmm. last year, they did not have a bunch of shooters. They didn't yeah. have basically anybody else that you could force the ball in the hands of. So it's like, yes, force someone besides Trey Young to beat you. When they were playing that defense against the Hawks, like Trey Young had not even barely done anything against them. He had scored one basket before by the time they started like okay we're going to go into box and one now and i get that they want to show a lot of different looks bjorkren definitely seems like a guy like and i agree with him to an extent that like nba players are really good and you probably can't show the exact same coverage all the time but it it, sometimes it just looks like they're confusing themselves more than they're confusing their opponent which is the goal of it like you want to switch up those coverages so so that the you're never getting comfortable and you're having to think about what type of defense your opponent's playing but instead it's like okay but you have two players arguing and i'm not saying they're getting into an argument like don't aggregate me that the pacers have chemistry issues that's not what i'm (laughs) saying i'm saying they're literally like negotiating on the court what type of defense they're even playing like I can show like three or four clips of that over the years, over the year of when they've been doing these different types of stuff. But like, even just looking at the base coverage, like you said, like the goal is to force turnovers and they've been good at that, but they were good at that two of the last four years when they weren't pressuring the heck out of the ball and giving up odd man advantages. And like, you know, thank goodness that miles is, you know, locking down the paint to the degree that he has in most of the games and that he's holding people to 40% because they're giving up the, like, there's no rim deterrence like at all. And then mm-hmm. some of that's intentional. Like they want to funnel tons of looks to him, but I just think that that's asking him to cover up for a lot when you wouldn't necessarily have to be doing that all the time. Um, and then I even just look at like, you know, over this last span, and it, it bears pointing out that Miles has been dealing with a broken hand. Like, I think mm-hmm. it's easy to forget that. Um, even though sometimes, like, my hand gets sympathy pains watching him because he's <laughs> shaking it around and I'm yeah. like, ouch. But Sabonis, too, has also been dealing with the bone bruise. I don't know what type of pain tolerance that's been. I know that you can see him at the free throw line rubbing his leg and his knee a lot. Um when he's getting ready to rebound, but like, I'm just looking at these games to me, the games that matter here, Brooklyn, Philadelphia, and Milwaukee, those are the top three teams in the Eastern conference. That's who the Pacers need to be able to match up with. And defensively in those games, like, let's just forget some of my quibbles with Sabonis or if, you know, people online just want to be like, you know, Sabonis is a trash defender, whatever. Like the Pacers in those three games with miles on the court gave up 132 points per 100 possessions against those three opponents against just Milwaukee. They gave up 150 when miles was on the court and those three opponents shot 68% at the rim in those three games. So like, is this completely sustainable against better teams? Like Milwaukee has the number one offense in the NBA. Like I don't, and some of that I can look at it and be like, okay, well last year they had to work through a lot of stuff with Milwaukee. The first game of the year, they tried just Brogdon guarding Giannis and that was too much of a load. Mm -hmm. Then they tried having Sabonis double off of Wesley Matthews as like with the center, but that was causing a lot of rotations issues. So by the end of the year, they had miles guard Giannis and they still got beat, but some of the possessions looked better. The matchups in that game, the, the cross matches were killing them. Like, I think that they would have been better off giving miles a chance to just guard Giannis and letting Sabonis sag off of, Brooke Lopez instead of like expecting Sabonis to guard Chris Middleton with like, again, Jeremy Lamb guarding Giannis. I, you know, some of those things are just questionable, but um, 
I think there is something to be said against forcing turnovers and keeping the defensive field goal percentage at the rim low against offenses that aren't as potent as, you know, what Brooklyn would be. Cause like, let's remember that Kevin Durant didn't even play in that game oh, and, and, <laughs> that and, been... and Milwaukee. Cause like I said, like, and, and the numbers I, I promised people in those three games, there wasn't a lot of solo miles minutes, but the defensive rating, even like fine, put Sabonis on the bench, the defensive rating in those three games was bad regardless. And, and miles for the year is holding people to like, what, like between 40 and 45% at the rim. And just in those three, it was 68.5%. Like not just on ones that he challenged, but that's what they gave up. Like teams were 37 to 54 at the rim when he was on the court. So, and some of that, you know, goes back to things that I said clear back when they played the Mavericks. Like if you're blitzing the heck out of Luca, which I thought was questionable back then, mm-hmm. then whether it was miles or Sabonis in that position, you know, if Miles is blitzing Luca, he's not at the rim when Perzingis was slipping and no low man was anywhere to be found. Like sometimes there needs to be a little bit more nuance to those discussions, but I definitely think it's something to monitor over the back end of the season. And we'll see how Karis and, and TJ impact it. But I do have some questions about how the defense is holding up against top 10 offenses, because there's a pretty big sample size between Brooklyn, Milwaukee, Philadelphia doesn't have a top 10 offense, but you know, they are one of the top three teams in the East Sacramento. They didn't have a low defensive rating, even in the minutes when miles was on the court, they have a top offense. So uh, I, I just question what the ceiling of it is against better teams on that side of the ball, but yeah, we'll see. Yeah. And one last thing I have in that too. I mean, I think um, it's a little bit frustrating just because you like, I, I, I really, I hate the discourse that comes around miles. Sometimes it's a little bit frustrating, believe it or not. I'm, I'm sure yeah, you know, no, you're, you're as well, but like, it's just a little bit disheartening because the team's, I mean, 14th in defensive rating right now, and it completely undersells what miles has done this year. Um, like I, they put him in such bad defensive positions sometimes to try and make things happen. And uh, one thing, I mean, I guess one thing I have liked is that he's playing higher up on ball screens. Oh um, yeah. Like I wrote about that today, like his, uh, the stuff he's been doing in terms of just with his hands um, and like, he's really improved on just jabbing out at, at drivers, uh, doing a lot of stuff to deter guys that is not going to show up in the box scores. But um, like, uh, like exactly like you're saying, like having forcing him to rotate over on the Giannis uh, on a drive is like, what are we doing here? You know, like it, at least try and put him on him. Like, yeah. Um, a lot of questions defensively that I hope will, will um, improve or maybe get better answered. Uh, as time goes on but uh yeah miles is has been incredible this year uh it's it's just very difficult to see like i mean we we again it's not even a, a diss towards uh domas no matter how people want to take it like um this team would not even be close to league average without how miles has played this year on defense yeah and i think that that both ways like absolutely like he's been an absolute i i love using my reference he's he's ruled the paint with an iron palm like legitimately <laughs> But I think, and my comment about those three games was to say, I just question oh, yeah. how sustainable the scheme is like for him in those types of situations. Like, is can you really be funneling that many shots to the rim against top tier opponents? Cause like, it, it didn't seem like it in those three games, like to expecting him to be doing that. And in some cases it was because he wasn't around. Just like I say, a lot of times with Sabonis, like he's not going to be getting a rebound if he's out guarding people. 30 feet from the basket on a fly-by closeout, but uh, yeah. 
and and his offensive involvement on those ones. Like I, I think he ended up being like three of 13 in those three games, mm-hmm. which obviously you'd like to see him be somehow involved. I mean, they don't, his, his involvement, really a lot of it comes from him because it's him finding gaps kind of in somewhat of the Thad mold. I mean, yeah. back when Thad was here, they ran like legitimately two plays for Thad, but he'd still get a decent volume of shots because he was just really good at manufacturing angles and finding spots. But uh, I wasn't super encouraged by, I mean, really much in those three, but obviously <laughs> yeah, you, want, you want the Pacers to be able to punch up a little bit more against the top in their conference than what they showed. But I realize that I do think a lot will shift when they're at full health, but maybe in some ways not. Cause I mean, I don't know who on this roster is guarding Giannis or Kevin Durant as a primary yeah. assignment, which then I go back and I'm like, okay, I get why you're trying to workshop some of the zone because you probably are going to need to mix in some of those things. It's just that right now they're not very good at the zone. So yeah. it's kind of a one problem begetting the other. But. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. Also shout out to, uh, to, to triple double master that I don't think he's finished with a triple double yet, but he's been tremendous. I, I haven't really enjoyed watching him in Chicago this year. Uh, but um, yeah, no, that I, was a, I, I that was that. one of the questions. Oh, I know. I saw me. that too. How can I, we get that back? I was like, unfortunately, it's pretty much impossible monetarily or not impossible, but just the ways that it would happen. It, it's not. Gonna it's happen. not going to happen, yeah. but you'd have to like trade. But it is an all time role player star for the yeah. for the. Yeah. Miss that Pacers. for sure. Um, all right. Are you ready? I mean, are you, are you up for food corner still? Yes, I am. OK, awesome. Um. How do you feel about talking about pizza today? Because I have a couple pizza-related questions. I, I think, you know, the Indiana Pizza Club's always great at uh, supporting our work and uh, doing some cool stuff. So I had, uh, I had, I thought we could construct our ideal pizzas. Oh, yes. Well, my, my pizza takes are not going to be popular. I'll well, just put that out there now. I'm not sure mine will be either. So I think this is, this is a great way to, to, to end. Um, so we're going to start off with crust. What is the ideal pizza crust to you? Um, Neapolitan Neapolitan style. I need the thin crispy yet airy crust. It is, I wrote about it in my pizza club article. Like if I went up to Fort Wayne one time was up there. Um, I highly recommend the sponsor me. I love 800 degree pizza. They have an actual oven. They've like, they trained over in Italy, how to make pizza. They imported an oven from Italy. They imported the flour from Italy and it is just Neapolitan. Perfect. That's what I like. So I'm okay. I, I, I kind of agree with you. I'm a little bit split. I love, really love like thin crust pizza, but not like, not, not like Donato's. Donato's is gross. Um, but like the actual, like you're talking about, like thin, like almost like cracker crust. I love that. But then I also really like New York style pizza, which is also thinner, but it's more chewy, which I, you know, that doesn't sound like great, but I don't know. I love it. I think it's fantastic. And also Detroit style pizza. I don't know if you've ever had Detroit style pizza. I, have. I really like Detroit style pizza. The I really great. I really don't like anything about Chicago style pizza. Oh, I hate Chicago style pizza. Chicago style it's not pizza. It's uh it's like a pie but I mean people say pizza pie but that's actually a pie. Like it's just kind of no, it's it's a monstrosity in my opinion. Yeah, I I some of my family lived up in Chicago. When I was younger, we went up there and ate it at Gino's and they're like so excited to take us there. And like the atmosphere of it was cool and being able to say like that mm-hmm. I was I had eaten there. I'm like, oh yeah, this is cool. But I'm like, I don't I don't like this. Yeah. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I ate one piece of it and I'm like, okay, I'm good. 
Like, it's like I'm watching full... Thad play in Chicago. <laughs> You're just like, oh, it's cool to see him do it, but I don't, I don't like that it's happening. It's, <laughs> yeah. He's there, but yeah, yeah. I actually, I, I enjoy the family experience and being able to say that I've done it once, but I don't have an interest in repeating it. I would agree with that. Um, so then, all right, the the next next part, cheese to sauce ratio. How how does this factor in for you? Because it, it's important to me. I have I have thoughts on it that are not popular. Um, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts on cheese to sauce ratio. A very important oh. aspect of pizza. <laughs> um, my take's going to get flamed here. Oh boy. Um, the less cheese, the better. Like I don't, I do not like the commercials are, do not appeal to me at all. Like when the person's lifting up the piece of cheese out of the pizza and like the strings are hanging down, like yep. apparently other people like find that really appealing, which to each their own, but like that is a major turnoff for me or cheese in the crust. That's like oozing out. Oh yeah. Cheese in the crust is a bit. No, I think it's an abomination. Exactly. The, the but, point of crust is to have good crust that you eat without having anything on it like I, no no like I, I mean in general i don't need a lot of either one but i guess if i have to pick one i would rather it was a little bit more saucy than overly cheesy like i do not want the cheese to overwhelm my toppings i don't really like the sensation in general of of biting through cheese i think it's like a texture thing because like i don't even yeah. want a mozzarella stick i don't want string cheese i don't want anything like that so yeah, I kind of agree. Like I part of it's I mean, I'm lactose intolerant like heavily, so that that definitely factors Yeah, I have too. dairy sensitivities yeah. which are, are shaping my take on this. It, it also shapes my take, but it, it does not stop me from eating pizza to be completely honest, but like I I agree. I think like cheese is just it's it's like we're talking about with the defense. I'd rather have one thing or like a very small amount of something that is very good instead of this giant heaping pile of crap, like not to say that the Pacers defense is crap, but like, uh, don't quote me on that. But like, I mean, I don't just want like a, an inch thick of cheese. That's like, you know, like part skim mozzarella. No, it's terrible. I just give me like, like put like a little small amount on. We get, we get, we know that it's there. Like there's a hint of it rather than it's the whole thing. And then with sauce too, like, I think sauce is important, but I've never liked to like if if the cheese is falling off because there's so much sauce like if you can pick up no, a piece no. of pizza and the cheese just rolls off what are we doing here that's again that's like fork and knife affair I, a good piece of pizza should be able to eat with without utensils so I agree I think both cheese and sauce should be just enough to cover but not enough to overwhelm I think that's how I lean and and do you know where this really comes into play is that pizzas that have barbecue sauce, like when they get overwhelmed, like if it's like ham and barbecue pizza and the and what you're saying is the case, like it's just like dripping in barbecue sauce mm -hmm. and then the ham and stuff is falling off, that that's just too much. Like it's almost worse when it's that type than just the tomato sauce. But yeah, I, I think that in the words of the Food Network and Chopped, like the topping should be the star. Exactly. Like 100%. not, and now not I want to watch chops. Off. <laughs> so what are, what are your ideal toppings then? Oh, this, I'm not near as picky about the one that I love. Uh, at, at once again, I name drop them. The one that I love at 800 degree pizza has, um, a lot of like random stuff. So like artichokes and zucchini and like i shouldn't say that's totally random it's just that like you're not gonna go into like every takeout pizza yeah. place and have that they also put on some goat cheese that like gives it a nice like a bit of funk with those vegetables and then 
I want to say, I'm trying to remember, like, it's been so long since I've been to a restaurant, Mark. This is like, I know, me too. It's, it's hard to remember what's on menus here. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that, yeah, it's not me. It's all, it's all vegetarian, but I do like pizzas. Like, I like pepperoni and other stuff. I'm not super picky on that end. Like, I'm pretty fairly adventurous. Like, I'll try stuff. Yeah, I agree. I'll try pretty much anything, but I will say, I've never been a big fan of sausage on pizza, partially just because I don't really like sausage very much. No, I don't really need it. It's just kind of like congealed meat, and it tastes not very good in my opinion. I don't really love bacon on pizza. It just feels like too much, you know? Like, it feels like a Lance Stevenson pizza. Like, it's just, no, just stay in your lane. Don't try and do that much. Um, Very much so, that's the vibe I get from bacon on pizza. I would prefer just like pepperoni but not I don't I don't like the like cuppy pepperoni that gets really crispy. The curly ones. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. really like that kind of pepperoni. I'd rather just have like regular pepperoni. Doesn't have to be like huge slices, doesn't have to be small slices, like just good pepperoni on thin crust. Um I like peppers on pizza. I won't lie, I really enjoy bell peppers on pizza. I know some people it's a faux pas. Um for me, it's fantastic. Um I also enjoy like the like shaved is the wrong way to put it but like the uh just like little flakes of basil is good i don't overtly love basil like if my sauce just tastes straight like bagel bagel gosh um if it if it tastes just straight up like basil i'm not gonna enjoy the sauce but like i like having little like basil leaves on it it makes me feel like i'm eating something healthier than it actually is um and it's just like a nice reminder i don't know that's uh that's my ideal pizza have you ever been to um pizza king I have not. I've had a lot of people tell me that I have to go to Pizza King. Well, the one thing that's great about Pizza King is on the pepperoni front, like they chop up all of their toppings. So like Mm -hmm. it's chopped pepperoni that covers the whole top of the pizza. Then that's what they do with the hamburger, you know, the peppers or whatever it is. So like, I like that because then when you're biting into it, it's not like dragging everything else off. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I didn't know how, I don't know how many locations of Pizza King there actually are. I know there's quite a few in Indiana but uh highly recommend for like the regular tier of pizza takeout places i was trying to look up the menu so i would know what else i had on the pizza that i actually like since i can't remember what my own favorite pizza is but it's not coming up well i will have to try it when i get oh, out there well, i guess i'll add on my hot take since it's a uh, past valentine's day i don't know if you had valentine's plans yesterday but I did we'll, not. Go, we'll go to dessert and i need to know what is your take on red velvet? Ooh. Um, part of me wants to hear your answer first, but I kind of like red velvet. Um, as long as, okay, but I don't, I don't like food dye because it's not good for you. Um, like it's like just for people who don't have ideas on that, like look up what red 40 is and, and tell me that you want to eat that. Um, but no, like I've had, the red velvet stuff I eat is like, I want to say it's like beet juice or something like that to, uh, to color it. I like red velvet just, but mainly because of the cream cheese frosting. I'm, I'm a big cream cheese frosting advocate. So I, I do have an affinity for red velvet cake. Okay. So my thing is like, I don't know that I've ever eaten a piece of red velvet cake and felt like, wow, that was awesome. Like, I don't think I've ever eaten one either and been like, that was awful. But like, I think it was just like, well, that was a thing that happened. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that the red is why people care about it. 
yeah. which is it, which is kind of weird because like it's basically chocolate cake like i understand that like traditionally red velvet cake i think has vinegar and other stuff in it that makes it the red color but i mean you're basically just eating a piece of chocolate cake so like why couldn't you just put cream cheese frosting on the chocolate cake like it, it's basically chocolate cake with an instagram filter <laughs> if, if we're being honest and i feel like we've gone like way overboard with it we're like we're amazed like there's red velvet funnel cakes red velvet oreos red, are you a like, funnel cake person wait i got I, I do I, I do like funnel. i cakes. don't like funnel cake that much but like why is a red velvet oreo really any different than a regular oreo other than the fact that the cookie is dyed red so i i overall i just think that red velvet is a conspiracy by the red food dye corporation to sell more of their coloring because I, I feel like we could get by with just eating chocolate cake. And I don't know why, like we have picked red as the color of choice. Like there should be purple velvet cake and, and yellow velvet cake. And you know what I mean? I, I just think that it's severely overrated. I think that's really fair. I, uh, I guess, you know, I just had always thought about how I enjoy it as a vessel for cream cheese frosting, but now that you mention it, screw it, just put it on, put it on chocolate cake. It's that simple. And chocolate cake is the best cake anyway, so um, there's that. But, okay, last last food take question I have for you, though, off that. What kind of cake? Like, are we talking – are you an airy cake person? Do you like dense cake? Like, I feel like this makes a big difference. Well, today, as I said, is my birthday, and my hope had been – from a prior podcast, if you remember, that I'd yeah, be able to lo- I'd be able to locate a banana cake mix, and this never came to pass. So fortunately, my mom is actually really good at baking cakes, like just stupendous at it. So she agreed to uh, drop off and bake me a cake, and it's going to be coconut. And she adds in like marshmallow and other stuff to it, and it's just going to be perfect. But I like my cake. I do not want the cake to be dense. I do not want it to be like some people like it when it's somewhat lumpy, which I don't understand. Uh, I like it to be moist but I also want to be able to like taste that there's salt in it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I, I like a moist, airy cake. Okay. I'm not on the airy front. I'm definitely not like, okay. I don't want it to be like, so you a, want it to a, be dense. I don't want it to be like a fruit cake, but like <laughs> I do like, cause fruit cake is like eating a brick, but um, I do kind of like it to be like a little thicker and a little dense. I'm not a lumpy person though. Like lumpy cake is miss me with that. But um, part of, I mean, cause that's me with brownies too. Like I'd rather have like a really dense brownie than like a cakey brownie. Oh yeah. I, yeah, I just think there's like it, it, at that point, like, okay, if I'm eating a cakey brownie, then it's, it's like eating cake. Why don't, why not just eat cake? If you're going to make a cakey brownie, make a fudgy brownie so that it's real. But that's just my thought on that. But um coconut cake sounds really good i've never had that before yeah she made it's it's pretty stupendous like i'm not gonna lie i don't even know how else to describe it i am not a baker like i'm really not i'm not really in anything like it's really hilarious because i watch the food network all the time but i have no interest in in cooking or baking like i i do it and i'm fine at it but i do not enjoy it so yeah i relate very heavily to that i'm very poor at baking like you mentioned i mean i grew up watching food network all the time and um, so I can cook stuff, but baking is where I draw the line. I, uh, for Easter a couple of years ago, my family was having a big dinner and I tried to make pound cake and it came out. It was like the most beautiful looking thing ever. Um, 
and I put it on, on the cooling rack and I came back five minutes later and it had sunk through the cooling rack. And that was just like, that, that day was the last day I, I've tried baking anything other than boxed brownies. So, um, and now we, here we are today enjoying our food takes, but, uh, Caitlin, this was, this was great. I really, I, I always enjoy getting to do our two questions to, uh, um, and, and happy birthday as well. Hopefully the rest of your day turns out a little bit better and it's not, uh, you don't get the projected 12 inches of snow that, that everybody's supposed to get tonight, but, uh, oh, we'll undeniably, undeniably my birthday is the worst weather day of the year, every year, like, <laughs> even the day I was born, that was true, but yeah. So I'm sure that we will, there will probably be 12 inches and bunches of ice, but in reality, like, I don't think it matters. Cause you know, where am I going? So, <laughs> yeah. Hey, I mean, watching the Pacers, hopefully a fad reunion tonight. So hopefully things go well with that and we'll see, uh, we'll see how that goes. Yes. Awesome. Well, to everyone listening, thank you so much for listening. We always appreciate it. Uh, we would love to hear what you think on, on, on what we mentioned today. Of course, send us any questions comments anything you have on that and we'll of course be doing this again in a month so send us your questions then as well uh let us know what you think about our food takes we probably won't care if you disagree with us because we have very opinionated food takes um but yes thank you again caitlin do you have anything you want to plug or or let people know about before we get out of here no i don't have anything planned yet until we'll see how these games go hopefully like i just get to write a bunch of positive stuff about how great everybody is that's really what i would hope Puff pieces for days. <laughs> yeah, yep. Yep. All right. Awesome. Well, uh, I'll talk to you again, Caitlin. Uh, have have an awesome, happy birthday. Everyone go wish Caitlin a happy birthday on Twitter. Um, just have a good rest of your day. I'll talk to you later.